me go ahead and just read the passage for you. Chapter 4 of James, verse 1 says, War, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy? Well, I entitled the passage or our study tonight, The Battle Royale, because that is what takes place in our hearts. You know, um, I've said this before, the, the worst person I've ever met in my life is me. And uh, because I know my weaknesses and I know the things I think and I can certainly um, go down a place that will not honor God. And he, speaking of James, addresses many of those areas. So there's three areas that I want to cover tonight. The source of conflict, verse 1. Reasons for conflict, verse 2 and 3 and unnecessary conflict, verses 4 and 5. Let's start with the source of conflict. Here in verse 1 where he says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? And, and specifically, he's talking about among you as believers, in the body of Christ, it church. Where does this stem from? Where does it come from? And he poses this question to believers. And that's who he's asking. You and I, believers. He's not talking to non-believers. He says, where do wars and fights come from? And the bigger question for me is, why? Why is this so important for me as a believer to understand this question? Is he referring to believers who are at war with each other or a different kind of war? What is he talking about here? James is actually making a comparison of sorts. Let's look at the previous chapter, specifically verses 13 down to 18. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. You know, it's interesting because when you read that verse, it says, do not, you know, boast and lie. You know, so many times I hear Christians who spiritualize their deficiencies and act like that's of God. No, that's your failure. You're just masking it with spirituality. And we need to be responsible and call it for what it is. But don't boast and say, oh, well, you know, it's, it's the Lord. No, it's not the Lord. You actually contradict the scripture. It says, this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual. Notice, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exists, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And that, that's the contrast. That's the comparison. Sown in peace. 
Now, remember, there is no chapter break. This is a letter. You know, I remember growing up when we wrote letters and wrote love letters. I never saw a chapter and verse. It was a letter, and you read it that way. Well, chapter and verse is for our convenience, really. It's so that we can make reference. And so he says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Again, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the church. Isn't that interesting? Have we gotten any better in the last 1,900 years? We've come a long way. 1,900 years, it still hasn't changed. Listen, the church is and has always been made up of imperfect people. And if you've been around this place long enough and you rub elbows long enough, you'll discover that. You know, it, it's, uh, we're family here. And at times, and you know this with your own family, you don't always like each other, do you? But the one thing I expect from my kids, and I tell them this, you're, oh, you're not always going to get along. Sometimes there's going to be skirmishes. Sometimes you're going to argue. Sometimes you're going to fight. And for good reason. You know, someone's, someone's right and someone's wrong. They just don't like to be addressed that way. But the one thing you need to do is respect each other. And that's something that sometimes I think is sorely lacking in church. We're so quick to point fingers and we, we, we begin to easily exalt ourselves. We put someone else down and we exalt ourselves up. We pick ourselves up. The early church experienced many of the problems and challenges we face today. The Corinthian church had major issues. There were those who were in there who were puffed up. It tells us in 1 Corinthians 4.18, there was sexual immorality. There was a man who had taken his mother's wife, or his father's wife, excuse me. They were suing one another, 1 Corinthians 6. The Galatian church also had problems. They were biting and devouring each other up. It tells us in Galatians 5.15, but if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed with one another. The church hasn't changed. But of course, that never happens here, does it? You know, you, you arrive at church and you've been coming here for quite some time and you've been sitting in the same spot for several years and you show up and you're in my seat. Yeah, you guys know that, right? Or you used to talk to the pastor and you used to wait and, and now you wave at him and he just kind of turns the other way and how come he doesn't notice me anymore? What's going on? Or you've been here for quite some time and you fill in the blank. You know those things that kind of rub you the wrong way. Let me first say that wars, agitations, conflicts, they're all a fact of life. Whether they're between nations, whether they're between family members or your workplace, wars occur on every level of life. The question, I believe, is rooted in a struggle that all Christians have, and that's the inner man. That's you and I. Someone once said, the worst piece of advice you can give someone is tell them to be themselves. Just be yourself. Now, I understand they're talking about personality, but the reality is, as Christians, I don't want to be myself. You don't want to know me. And I don't want to know you. I want to know the person that Christ is forming in you. That's who I want to know. 
Notice he says the reason why we war and fight is that it's a result for our desires for pleasure that originate from within us. Notice all the personal pronouns. Your desires for pleasure, you lust, you murder, you covet and you do not have. You ask and do not receive. You may spend it on what? Your own pleasures. You, you, you. Again, that doesn't describe you, does it? I mean, you don't fit this criteria. He's talking about this battle that occurs from within. And this is an interesting construction of the Greek here, for he says, wars and fighting. The word for wars can be used figuratively or literally. Here, obviously, he's using figurative terms. So it means conflict or, or quarrel. And the word, meaning for the word fights, can mean contentions. So both words put together can be better understood as conflicts and contentions. Again, the church will always have skirmishes. How do we minimize these skirmishes? We've got to be biblical. The flesh is always there. But I have to be wise enough to understand that, you know what? My flesh will not have the right answers. I need to be biblical. I need to resort to the word of God. I need his wisdom. And these conflicts and contentions occur, notice, from your desires for pleasure that war in your members. Our sinful nature. You know him as the old man. James says, uh, again, where do they occur? Why why are they happening in your fellowship? He says they come from our desires for pleasure. And the word for pleasure is the word lust in the King James. And and that word pleasure in the Greek is the word hedone. It's where we get the word for hedonism. You know, licentious living. Living for self, for pleasure. And the idea is one who's seeking what they want. The thing they, that will give them the pleasure that will satisfy them. In Titus 3.3, 3, we read, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures. That's the word there. Luke 8.14, Jesus says, Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. Pleasures. The third seed in this parable, Jesus taught, would choke out the word. Your pursuit for pleasure will choke out the word of God in your life. There will be no maturity. You seek out your own pleasure. You want it like Burger King. You want it your way. It's not going to happen. And if you begin to do that, you will soon find yourself in enmity with God. It's not just an external influence. It's this internal urge, this compulsion that we all have. And and folks, don't get me wrong. These things that James talks about are powerful things left unchecked. If we don't monitor our own lives, these things will destroy us. Furthermore, he says... Let me tell you where they're coming from. It comes from within. It's this intense desire to have, and we war, we battle. So what does the world do? They opt out for medication. They take drugs. They, they try to fill that void. And it's a, it's a God-formed void, and they're trying to fill it, and they can't. Notice, 
it, it occurs in their members. And that word is the word melos in the Greek. It's, it's a limb of the human body. It's always relative to the human body. It's always an illustration of the body. It occurs in Matthew 5.30. It says, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for that one of your members perish. Romans 6.13, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. Romans 7.23, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me to captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. This is a very important subject to talk about. It's one of those subjects where I think we all get uncomfortable about because we want to justify that thing we want to do. We're always looking for justification. You ever think about that? There's always that thing in my mind, I really want to enjoy, but I'm looking for justification to, for it to occur. So that I, I can say, well, you know, it just happened. Looking for opportunity. For some, it's sex. For some, it's entertaining that flirt, those flirtations advances from the other sex, or it's a vice. And what, what happens is we live in a society, in a culture that says it's, everyone's, it's everyone else's fault but my own. We're programmed this way. I'm not to blame. You're to blame, not me. How did this happen? Where did the blame game begin? Well, I'll tell you where it began. It began in the Garden of Eden. When God went looking for Adam after he, he found him, God began to ask him, Hey, Adam, where have you been? Where were you? And Adam's reply in Genesis 3.10 was, I heard your voice in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And the Lord asked him how he knew he was naked, and if he had eaten the forbidden fruit. God knew. He just wanted to hear from his own lips. And what was the first thing he said when he confronted him about his disobedience? Well, I'm going to paraphrase here. Well, Lord, you know that woman that you formed, remember her? I mean, you knocked me out. You put me to sleep. You took the bone from my side. You created her. Whose fault? Who, who's he saying that is the blame here? He's saying, God, it's your fault. We were cool in the garden together. We had no problems. Just you and me and the animals. But this woman you brought, that's the problem. You created her. This is the original passing the buck. Satan, the sociologists, psychologists, we want to blame everyone else except you. That you are a product of your environment. Your problems are a result of your upbringing. You grew up in Riverside. I mean, oh, pass on that one. Um, it's everyone else's fault but your own. And politicians are at the best of this, aren't they? I mean, it's not my fault. It's one of my colleagues. You know, and they're really good at this. You know, last week, Hillary Clinton, when, when asked about her emails, you know, whether she was responsible for wiping the server, and how insulting. What did she say? What, you mean like with a towel? How insulting. Passing the buck. I'm not at fault here. And right away, what, what do they say? The media was playing partisan politics. In other words, someone else is to blame. This is, not a, this is a non-issue. No one admits fault. They all blame the other side. 
Bill Cosby, accused of date raping all these women. And what was his response? You know, all they want is money. For years and years and years, all they want is money. And New York Magazine publishes a magazine, uh, and on the cover, you may have seen this, 35 women on the cover. 35 women. You can only uh, play the blame game so far. And that's what we do when we get busted, isn't it? We pass the buck. Listen, James was addressing the first century church. The church. You and I. That's who he's addressing. And Rome was the power. And the Caesars weren't noted for their congeniality, were they? They ruled with an iron fist. And he was saying, listen, these battles you're having aren't necessarily coming from without. They're coming from within. They're coming from within. It's not your environment. It's not the government. It's not even the country you're living in. You're the problema. It's you. You're at fault. Admittedly, I know, I understand environment can give rise to a greater degree of my sin um, given time and opportunity. Again, my, believe you, believe you me, my flesh is always ready to go. Okay? So you give me the right environment, it's going to flourish. But it doesn't mean I can't control it. By the power of the Holy Spirit, I can live above my sin. Oh, I know what the issue is. It's an esteem issue. I, have, I need to go see a Christian psychologist. Maybe he can deal with the esteem issue I'm having. Well, let me save you a couple of hundred bucks here. The issue is self-esteem. It is. The issue is self-esteem. Think about that. It is self-esteem. You say, well, wait a minute for now. That's some biblical. I mean, uh, no, it's not. Self-esteem, you're right. We have too much of it. But what does Jeremiah 17, 9 say? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Yeah, it's a self-esteem issue. Folks, we weren't designed to esteem ourselves. We were designed to love and value others. But our sinful hearts influence us otherwise. It's our sinful hearts. You know, last Sunday I had the privilege to teach the junior high and high schoolers at the beach. And, you know, the scripture I was given was Matthew 13, and specifically verses 45 and 46, where Jesus taught about the merchant purchasing the pearl of great price. And the parable illustrates how Jesus is the merchant and the, and the great price he had to pay for this pearl. And that pearl is you and I. That's, that's what he taught. He, he's out seeking who he could save, and he purchases us. The point is, precious gems and precious metals are dug up from the earth. Pearls, however, are harvested from the ocean. Diamonds are, are, are cut and shaped. Gold is refined. And, and each one has its process. Pearls, however, are a little different. At the heart of every pearl is a grain of sand. The sand enters the oyster's stomach, and the, the oyster's stomach gets irritated, and it begins to create these layers over this grain of sand. And year after year, the layers get more established. Now, pearls are unique 
and, and therefore valuable. And their, their value is predicated on their size and their color. You know, I find Jesus' parable interesting because, again, at the heart of every pearl is a grain of, of sand or dirt. And we're nothing but a grain of sand. We're just this little bit of piece of sand, a debris. Yet he doesn't see me that way. He doesn't see you that way. He says, you're a pearl. And I like that because I know at the heart there's dirt. But he sees value. He sees value in human life. Now, in and of ourselves, I know there's no value in and of ourselves. But he values our lives. He created us in his image. You know, I asked the kids on Sunday a question, which I'm going to ask you. Who are you willing to die for? Of course, they're thinking, Mom. How about your wife? Your family? How about Rosie O'Donnell? Bill Maher? Bruce Jenner? What about the alcoholic or the adulterer? What about them? I'm sure you have a pretty short list, right? Why? Because you placed a value on your own, your own life. Therefore, the lives of those people don't have as much value relative to yours. However, Jesus sees a world full of murderers, drunkards, liars, and thieves. He sees a world full of hate, hate for him and hate for man. Yet that's not the way he sees us. He sees a world that needs saving. He sees a world of pearls. He says, you're precious in my eyes, even though at the heart of the pearl, there's dirt. Are you a pleasure seeker? Are you looking to fill all your heart's desires? Are you only looking to gratify yourself? And you may be here tonight, and you're already strategizing, man, I can't wait till this guy finishes. I already have plans. I'm going to go hit this place. I'm going to go do this thing. Maybe you have a midnight rendezvous. You're thinking about Vegas. Let me tell you, pleasing yourself, you will never gratify yourself. Gratification comes when I actually give my life to others and I know I'm pleasing the Lord. Hope you understand that. Gratification comes when I give myself to another person knowing that I'm serving the Lord. That's where there's value. That's where there's a sense of gratification. And I want to challenge you this week as you go out. Look at people the way God sees people. And I'll tell you, your outlook will be different. You will respond differently. I guarantee it. So, well, you don't understand. I know these people. I know these people too. We went to a wedding this past Saturday, and, and you know what? I know all these people. But God spoke to my heart. He says, see them the way I see them. Complete different outlook. Because I'm seeing them the way God sees them. Notice he continues with Warner members with the reasons for conflict here in verses 2 and 3. Notice that uh, the first reason is we don't ask. Verse 2, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you don't ask. Again, the word lust, the word lust is different than the word lust found in verse 1. It's a different word. The word there was pleasure. Here, it's this intense desire to have, to want to covet. It's often used in the pursuit of something that's forbidden. In Matthew 5.28, it says, 
But I say unto you that whoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, again, that's the word, has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And we're going to make reference to that verse in a few moments. Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law, for I had not known lust except had the law said so. Thou shalt not covet. Then he says, you murder and you covet and cannot obtain. Obviously, he's speaking in spiritual terms. He's speaking along the same lines Jesus did. He said in Matthew 5 that whoever is angry with his brother commits murder in his heart. That whoever looks upon a woman and lusts after her has committed adultery. Where? In his heart. The issue is a heart issue. That's what he's referring to. It's the heart. And notice the results are damaging. And they're internal. There's lusting. There's murders. There's coveting. There's fighting. There's warring. Folks, these are powerful words. And he's talking about believers. He's saying we struggle over anger. That we just, we get so angry we want to kill somebody. You ever felt that way? You just want to wring someone's neck? Some coworker, some guy you see every day, he just irritates you and bugs you. It's going on in the heart. There's that desire to have more and more and more, and we can't get it. We can't acquire it. We see what someone else has, and we begin to covet. We want to have what they have, and we're not satisfied. You fight and war. Then he says, you do all this because you do not have, because you've never asked. We have this internal struggle because we've never asked. Duh. James is like a mechanic. He's hooked us up to this diagnostic machine, and he says, ah, here's the problem. Your fuel filter needs to be replaced. And if you don't replace that filter, guess what? You're going to end up being stuck in the middle of nowhere. He says, but I'll tell you what. Let me change it for you. Man, your car is going to run just as good as new, and you're on your way. And that's what James is doing here for us. He's doing us the favor. He says, here's the problem. I'm pointing it out. You need to take care of this. He says, if you do, you're going to walk right. You're going to live right. He says, you're fighting and warring within yourselves because you've not asked. That's an easy fix. Yet when the Bible gives us a prognosis of who we are, we immediately want a different opinion, don't we? He says, all of this is taking center stage in your life, and you're never satisfied. He says, you, he says, you cannot obtain, you cannot attain, or you get your hands on it. And there's something inside each and every one of us, and there's no reasoning with it. There's that intangible thing in us. We can't barter or, or argue with it. We buy that new car. We take it for a spin. Man, we're happy. And then we drive down the street and we, this expensive other car rolls up right next to us. And immediately we feel this big, don't we? All of a sudden we're discontent. That new car we had isn't as nice as we thought it was. Or, you know, ladies. They go out. They go buy a nice dress. They accessorize. They buy the purse. They buy the shoes. They buy the earrings. They glam up. They're great. As soon as they go out and they go someplace and they see... Another lady with a nicer dress and nicer shoes, and they compare themselves, and immediately, that dress and that purse doesn't look so nice anymore. 
And that's what we do. We want more. I don't know about you. I, that's, it happens to me. I think it happens to you. We're never content. The heart of man is never filled or is, nor satisfied. It could be drugs. It could be alcohol. It could be sex. It could be pornography. You know, the interesting thing about pornography, there was a study conducted uh, to see the effects of pornography and what it does to a person. And it was the largest study of its kind here in North America. And what they did was they took subjects who had never seen pornography before. Okay? They had never, never experienced it. They never seen it. And the, uh, what they, so what they did was they figured, we're going to give you as much as you want whenever you want. Well, as the study pro- progressed, the researchers had to back off. They, they felt like they had an ethical issue on their hands. It was getting pretty bad. They had to stop the program. They felt culpable. And one of the findings they discovered was that they, these folks no longer re, uh, related to people relationally anymore. They saw people as objects. You understand that? No longer do they see people as, as we can have a relationship that we could talk and engage. That didn't exist anymore. They just saw them as objects. Something changed. And I think in much the same way, that's what happens with everything else we've been talking about. More pornography didn't satisfy these folks, just like more drugs or more alcohol will either. And again, we're going to have that struggle until we get to heaven. That's what I'm saying. There is that, that intangible that we can't reason with, yet we live with. He says we have not because we ask not. We fight and we war. We struggle from within. And James tells us we haven't asked. We haven't come to God with our requests. We forfeit so many things in our life because we've never asked. And what's the implication? You know what the implication is? We're not praying. That's what James is saying in in a roundabout way. We're not spending time with the Father. Because if we're not asking, that means we're not talking to God. We're just kind of flying by the seat of our pants. Someone once said, fight all your battles on your knees and you win every time. John Bunyan put it this way. Prayer will make a man cease from sin or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer. God wants us to spend time with him alone. He's desirous to spend time with you. If only we could spend more time on our knees it would solve much of the internal struggles we have. You know, I was thinking about this too. You know, you think about how Satan counterfeits everything. Look at Islam. And we'll refer to that in a few moments as well. But, you know, what's, what's jihad mean? Inner struggle. Except they corrupt it. Well, you know, he counterfeited that. Because we have an inner struggle. But they use it to advance their religion. But we have an inner struggle. If we spent more time on our knees, it would help us recalibrate our minds. It would cause us to cast our burdens on him. It would settle our hearts. Let me ask you a question. You answer that in your own heart. When's the last time you actually prostrated yourself and got on your knees to pray? When's the last time that happened? 
Oh, come on for now. You're being a little extreme here, aren't you? Am I? If that's the first reaction you had, if that was your immediate reaction, something is wrong with you. And I mean that. Something is wrong with you. You know, by this time, in the evening now, Muslims have already prostrated themselves and prayed five times towards Mecca. Five times. They've gone on the ground and prostrated themselves and prayed to Allah. They even have apps to remind them the time to pray so they can pray. If Muslims can do that for a lie, why can't we do it for the one true living God who spilled his blood on the ground for us? There's a challenge. Spending time in prayer, not spending time wrestling internally. Prayer helps me get my eyes off myself and on what's truly important. But the issue we struggle with is convenience, isn't it? Oh, come on. For now, when I'm driving, I can pray. Or I'm at work. I mean, I stop and I pray. Yeah, I understand that. God hears us. But when's the last time that you got on your knees and you prayed? Listen, the, the idea of worship. What is the idea of worship? We prostrate ourselves before someone who's greater than myself. I'm giving that person uh, not only worship, but worth. He is worthy. I'll tell you what. If you disagree with me, you're saying, you know what? You're crazy. Give me chapter and verse. I'm all ears. You tell me why you shouldn't get on your knees to pray. I'll buy it. Show me chapter and verse. He's worthy. Prayer should cause us to get on our knees because we're not deserving. That's what prayer should do. It should cause us to get on our knees. Also, he says there's inappropriate requests in verse 3. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Okay, technology. Now, James is telling us some of you need to begin praying. And that's true. But sometimes we ask inappropriately. We're asking amiss. Notice the nature of their prayers. They're hoping to facilitate their own pleasures. And again, that word for pleasure is the one we saw in verse 1. The one we get for hedonism. There were times you've asked the Lord and nothing is happening. That's because your requests were wrong in nature. We treat God like he's Santa Claus. Right? Or he's a genie in the sky. Hey, God, give me three big ones. Just three. Okay, okay, how about one? We begin to negotiate with God. You need to come through. Give me one, Lord. And he's not a genie. Or, Lord, give me that nice job. The money I make, I'll make sure I support missionaries. Okay, Lord? Let's do that. Or, or Lord, give me that house. I'll have home fellowships. We'll, we'll invite people from church. But we know down deep inside, I have a different motive. I have an angle. Let me tell you something. God doesn't need us to have a home fellowship. Okay? He, he, he owns everything. Okay? We need to come with the right attitude and ask appropriately. We pray that way and we ask amiss. And sadly, there are too many Christians out there who pray, Our Father who art in heaven, gimme, give gimme, give gimme. Give 
don't they? Prayer is not to get our will done. It's to get our wills aligned to his in order to get his will done. You know, folks, God is so gracious and he's benevolent to us. Um, I have no doubt that with the right attitude and the right time and his wisdom, he'll bless us. He'll answer those prayers. Even the prayers <laughs> that he never answered. We should be happy for those, some of those prayers. You know, Ruth Graham, she said, God has not always answered my prayers. If he had, I would have married the wrong man several times. I love it. Thank God for unanswered prayers. He says, you do not receive because you ask amiss. It's the word kakos, meaning there's something wicked in nature with what we're asking for. We're asking with the wrong motive. You ask and don't receive because you're asking for something wrong so you may devour it for your own pleasures. Well, we've seen the source of conflict, reasons for conflict. Now we're going to look at unnecessary conflict in verses 4 and 5. He says again here, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Again, he's relating to them in spiritual terms. He's talking to them about spiritual adultery. The nation of Israel understood this. Being a people of God had committed a sin of treason. You know, when we went to Israel, I was always amazed of, of how they pursued other gods. Here you have the, the true and living God, and yet, to this day, they still follow other gods up in the hills. That blows my mind. Because he's a true and living God. You are in the, in the land because he puts you there. And then you worship other gods. Jeremiah 3.20 says, Surely, as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so have you dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. Hosea 9.1, Do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like other peoples, for you have played the harlot against your God. They've left the true and living God. And he's, he's making that comparison here to Christians that we can do the same thing, that we can follow after other gods. James and many others understood that those who chose to walk away and follow other gods were committing, again, spiritual adultery. And it's in this context he is saying here, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He's making that comparison. You're going to be friends with the world. That's... that's like idolatry, you're, you're following after another God. He's talking about this world system with all its influences and its philosophies. And what most folks don't realize is when you begin to pursue the world, the world will eventually become your master. You'll be mastered by the world. You cannot control it. Just like everything else, you know, I, I warn my kids, you do this, I guarantee you, you're going to be mastered by it. You're not above it. You are not unique. You will fall and you will fail. And we have those stern warnings throughout the scripture. You go after the world, it will become your master. And James is using a great illustration. He's saying our groom is the Lord Jesus Christ. We've entered this spiritual relationship with him for eternity. He saved us from the world. But the moment we go after the world, James tells us we're entering a new relationship and forsaking the other. And that's what adultery does. It's an act of treason. It's an act of betrayal. You can't 
worship the Lord Jesus Christ and go after the world and embrace both. You can't do it. You just can't do it. Notice the word here for friendship is the Greek word philea. And it's only used here in the New Testament. It's, it's related to philos as friend in verse 4. And the, the, the verb phileo for love. A friendship type of love. And there were some of the churches who made, make a mistake. They say in order to reach the world, in order to reach the world, we need to be like the world. And that's a grave error we would make if we do. And that's not what the Bible teaches. So we have churches that run focus groups, asking questions as to how we can stay in touch and lock in step with the world. What makes the world happy is what they're saying. And can we bring that into the church? So they ask questions such as uh, how they like to be greeted when they come in the church, the type of music they should play, the use of technology and worship services. Now, again, don't get me wrong. Um, the church should be a reflection of Jesus Christ. It should be a place where Jesus Christ is worshipped, and there's a heavy emphasis on the teaching of his word. Fortunately, fortunately, the church of Jesus Christ is alive and doing well. But you have a pseudo-church emulating the church of Jesus Christ. One that appeals to man rather than the person of Jesus Christ. And James says here that friendship with the world is an enmity with God. In other words, if you make friendships with the world, you start a war you cannot win. Because now you're warring against God. You thought you were only warring with yourself, but by chumming up with the world, now you're rattling sabers with God. And my friends... You will not win. You will not win. There is no room for friendships with the world. My life depends on it. My life depends on it. It's counterintuitive towards the maturity and development of the believer. And God will not have any part with it. You're going against him yourself. The Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I wouldn't want to be in that position. And he says, whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is the person who's seeking after the world. They're pursuing. They're going after. It's an act of treason. They're going to the dark side, if you will. Wait a minute, Fernando. Are you saying I can't go to the club and go dancing? I mean, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm not hurting anybody. Or... I'm going to go out with this non-believer. I mean, she needs to get saved, doesn't she? She needs to hear the gospel. You're playing with the world. Let me be clear. Hollywood wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ. The White House doesn't want to do anything with Jesus Christ. Europe wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ. That should tell you something. Even the folks with the coexist bumper stickers, they want nothing to do with Jesus Christ. Okay? James is, is dispensing a warning to all believers. And listen, when you begin to align yourself with Christ that way, the world is going to hate you. And if the world hates you, that's a good thing. It's actually a good thing. Jesus said in John fifteen eighteen, 
If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Do you know why we go after the world? I'll tell you why. It's the same ploy used by Satan from the beginning. In Genesis 3 again, what was saying, let's, let's, go, let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Just so we can get a flavor of the passage here. Genesis chapter 3. He says here, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you should not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What was Satan saying? What he was saying was, you're missing out on the experience. You're missing out on something. God is the only one who happens to be enjoying being God, and you're missing out on being God. That, that's what he's saying. Everyone's going to the party but me. What are you saying? I'm missing out on the party. I'm missing out on the experience. That girl in the gym who's been giving me the, the, the goo-goo eyes, Maybe I should call her, approach her. I can't. I'm married. But I'm missing out on the experience. Think about that. That whole Ashley Madison website, I'm sure you guys have heard about it. Why do men apply to it? They don't want to miss out. They're missing out on the experience, the excitement, the allurement. It's the same ploy Satan has used from the very beginning. God has a better experience awaiting us. Someone once said the Christian life is not adding Jesus' own way to life, but renouncing that personal way of life for his and being willing to pay whatever cost that may require. Living for him. And notice here where he says here in verse 5, Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy. It says the Holy Spirit desires to direct our lives, and he actually gets provoked to jealousy when we turn to other things. You know, we're told not to quench the spirit, that we should allow the spirit to move in our lives and not quench the Holy Spirit. We're told not to resist the spirit. Why? He's a loving God, and he knows what's best for his people. Jealousy. This, I, this word carries the idea of envy caused by witnessing the unfaithfulness of a person. What's interesting about the Holy Spirit is he lives in us. We can't escape him. We can't hide from him. He lives in us. He knows exactly what we're thinking, what we're going to do. He knows everything about us. And the moment we start dabbling with the world, the Spirit is moved to jealousy because he knows the cunning unfaithfulness of the world. He knows what will happen as we go after the world. And so he's envious. He says, I know it's going to happen, Fernando, if we go down that road. It's going to ruin you. I love you. Why are you pursuing that thing that doesn't love you? 
And I'm sure everyone here has been jealous at some point or another in their life, whether it was their status in school, their, you know, you're, you're envious of somebody in their workplace, their achievements. I know all of us have, have experienced that in our lives at one point or another. Or that girl. I'll share something personal. I remember when I was in high school and just thinking about this, about jealousy and envy. Um, it was the end of senior year. Graduations t- already took in place. Uh, a bunch of us, a whole bunch of us decided to go to Chantry Flats in the evening and hang out and just celebrate. And there was, I had a really good friend and he knew I was crazy about this girl. And he knew for a long time, many, many years. And so we're there, and I'm, oh, she, she came. I'm thinking, oh, man, what an opportunity. And, you know, end of the year, so, you know, no more high school. We're all excited. And, and I'm thinking, boy, you know, I, I can't wait. Maybe I, can, maybe I can talk to her. So over Chantry Flats, it's dark. You kind of get lost. And, and even though you're hanging with a bunch of friends, and I remember I'm looking for her. I'm looking for her. can't find her. And guess who, who uh, she's with? With my friend, and you don't know, you, you want to talk about the feelings of just jealousy and envy that occurred, because I knew it was going to happen. He was going to use her and dismiss her, and that's exactly what happened. And the Holy Spirit, in one way or another, that's what He's trying to communicate to you and I, that when we begin to pursue after the world and we make friendships with the world, that the world's just going to chew you up. The world does doesn't want the Lord, doesn't want Christ, but it wants you, it wants to use you and abuse you. And in some way, I feel that's how the Lord feels towards us. He is jealous for you. As someone said, he treats you like you're the only person on the face of the planet. And that resonates with me. Because I really believe that. I believe that he makes me feel that way. And he says, I yearn jealousy for you. How important that is for the body of Christ to know that. That we wouldn't have the struggles that we see here in the book of James. That we wouldn't have those internal battles. That I would spend time in prayer seeking him. That I get my mind right. That, that we can serve one another and rejoice in what he's done in our lives. But the moment I begin to veer and go after the world, we're going to find ourselves short. But we're going we're to battle. We're going to struggle. That's a problem. What a great thing to know that the Lord of heaven loves us this much, that he yearns jealousy. What a great thing. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we thank you for this book of James. And Lord, for the things that you just demonstrate to us, Lord. Real things, things that pertain to our lives here while we wait for you. And Lord, we just want to again thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that we're just challenged that we would, um, Lord, look at people the way you see them, Lord, as pearls. And Lord, that we would um, just yield to you. Father, that we would begin, Lord, to just plant our faces to the ground and pray to you and seek you, Lord, to humble ourselves. And Lord, that we would not pursue the world, Lord. Those things that just aren't profitable. And so, Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.